When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about that sound? You're listening to a set of GE appliances, complete with all you need to keep food fresh, dishes clean, and everything else stress-free. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off select GE appliances right now. Offer valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. U.S. only. See store or online for details. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, we kick off the ninth season of Let It Roll with the return of Joe Bonomo, who's joining Nate to discuss his 33 and a third book on ACDC's Highway to Hell. Nate and Joe talk about the Aussie band's mastery of the hard rock format, the tragic death of Bon Scott, the band's early association with punk rock, and how and why they chose to distance themselves from that movement, producer Mutt Lang, and much more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. And returning to the show is Joe Bonomo, here to talk about his 33 and a third book, Highway to Hell, about ACDC's breakthrough album. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me back. Sure. And it's a treat. And I love talking about ACDC. I think every Gen Xer has a deeply embedded love for ACDC because that was that was just a band that did it for kids who were, I don't know, 10 to 13 in the 79, 80 period, maybe 10 to 20 in that period. But it's a band that rock critics did not like at the time and still have never really understood. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, but that's also something that ACDC took uh, as a sort of a badge of, of pride, you know, uh, that they would read reviews of albums or reviews of shows where critics would sort of um, look down on them and complain about the the three chord simplicity and the, the the staleness of the lyrics or the cliche of the lyrics, whatever, whatever critic you were listening to. And then ACDC would go on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people and, and packed 
venues and later on packed stadiums and their albums would sell millions throughout the 80s and even in the 90s. So the, the critical sniping did not hurt them at all. They just they just gave a half grin at it all. Yeah. And you've got a great quote from Angus Young here in the book that that said, we've got the basic thing the kids want. They want to rock and that's it. They want to be part of the band as a mass. When you hit a guitar chord, a lot of the kids in the audience are hitting it with you. They're so much into the band, they're going through all the motions with you. If you can get the mass to react as a whole, that's the ideal thing. That's what a lot of bands lack, and that's why the critics are wrong. I just thought that was a beautiful statement of purpose from Angus there. And summarizes what it is that was special about ACDC. I mean, to me, they're a second wave rock band. They're not one of the inventors of, of rock music. You know, they're not even part of the Jimi Hendrix cream uh, iteration that formalized how to rock with martial amps and the whole, you know, stage monitors and, and a massive PA, but they perfected it and they brought it to massive crowds for decades. And, and, I think that's a massive accomplishment. And even though they're not necessarily innovators and they weren't formally advancing the art, they were perfecting it. And I think that that absolutely has a place. So what motivated you to write this book for the 33 and a third series? Well, I wanted to write a book for the series uh, for a while. I had originally pitched uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis Live at the Star Club album. Um, uh, But the editor at the time of the series came back to me and said, well, maybe not that book. Uh, but would you consider expanding that into into a large book, which I was grateful and happy to do? And that turned out to be my book, Lost and Found. But a couple of years later, I still had the itch to write for the, the 33 and a third series. So among the albums that I, I felt like that I could choose from, Highway to Hell kind of stuck out for me for a number of reasons. The chief one being that I was kind of bemused by the fact that I loved this album so much now as a grown man, uh, as much as I did when I was a a, a freshly minted uh, teenager in 1979 when the album was released. And I thought it'd be interesting to try and write intelligently about a quote unquote stupid album or a dumb album that is an album filled with sort of party rock and roll songs. um, Given with a, with, with a, with a grin and and music that doesn't take itself too seriously. So I was wondering and I was interested in, in trying to answer, ask and answer the question, why is it that an album that was so important to me as a teenager it still feels important to me now and still sort of rocks as hard for me now as, as it ever did? And I figured that, this, that would be a good album to try and answer that question and that idea of how is it that simple three-chord rock and roll can last and can endure and can matter to somebody over the decades. You know, you'd like to think that music that, in fact, there, there have been, there have been, research and studies that have have shown that music that you love when you're 12, 13, 14, that era, that age uh, 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 era gets in you and and really stays. And those turn out to be some of the songs that you love deeply for the rest of your life and keep surprising you and keep renewing themselves. So that album, Highway to Health, sort of fell into that age group. And I I wondered, well, yeah, why is it that, that this album still matters to me? So I turned it up and I gave it a shot to, to write about. And I think you pulled it off. And, and it brings up a question, and I don't think there's not necessarily an answer to this, but there's two sorts of ways in which music passes the test of time. And one is the way you mentioned, where music means so much to you when you're young. and But it's not every album. I mean, there were lots of albums when we were early teens or tweens that we listened to or maybe bought at the same time as Highway to Hell that has not held up 
For you sure. know, in our personal yeah. assessments. But there's also the phenomenon of music going from generation to generation. And I'm curious how much ACDC has passed that test. I mean, they certainly were packing halls all through the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. Um, do you think that the appeal of ACDC goes down to the millennials and the Zoomers? Oh, I do, for sure. I mean, you, 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 we don't have to stop at the 20, at the aughts. I mean, they, they, were, they were selling out stadiums on their last tour, whenever that was. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, in, in my book a documentary that was made about their 2008 Black Ice tour. Uh, and among the, the sort of the, I was about to say startling, but maybe not so startling images that you see are uh, dyed-in-the-wool ACDC fans in their 40s and 30s going to the shows and lifting their their own kids up on their on their shoulders, you know, and obviously passing the love of ACDC down. Um, I think that it, it, I, in part because they've been around for so long and because there are, there, there are so long gaps of time between their albums and between their tours you know, in this sort of very, very rapidly moving culture and era that we live in now, I think probably ACDC is not uh, as important or is not as popular to to kids in their teens and, and 20s now as it might have been 10, 20 years ago to that to that same group. Now, I'm sure there are lots of reasons for that, but I know that ACDC fans definitely have passed their love for the band on to, to later generations. And it has to go to it goes to the to to the simple but beautiful endurance of the the songs that they wrote. You know, they they, they especially in in the Bond Scott years, they and a little bit earlier or later into the, the Brian Johnson years, the early years with them, they just they, they they got their hands around something eternal in those three chords and in those those sort of stomping beats that really I think you know, one risks being a little precious saying this, but really transcends time and transcends the the, the, the circumstances of, of their making and, and, and becomes music that really endures, that future generations are going to find irresistible, absolutely. And let's hear a little bit. This is um, a pretty early ACD song, Long Way to the Top, and we'll hear Bon Scott on bagpipes. some fairly early ACDC, long way to the top if you want to rock and roll with Bon Scott on bagpipes. And to me, that's just the definitive early ACDC song. It's got Bon Scott singing from a working class perspective as a rock and roller, but then the totally innovative thing of throwing in the bagpipes. I mean, there's maybe four songs in rock history that have bagpipes and have pulled it off, and that one is absolutely among them. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no doubt it. Yeah, there's no doubt that's 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 Bon Scott at his best. You know, it's almost it's almost impossible to imagine them recording that without seeing Bon Scott sort of crack up, you know, or give a half grin to this because he knows how absurd it is to to import bagpipes into a rock and roll song. But that's the kind of sense of humor and the kind of jaw of Eve he had that he knew that he was going to be able to pull it off, and and they do. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk a little bit about the genesis of ACDC. And we, we mentioned Vanda and Young produced that, or maybe I did. 
But that's George Young, who was the older brother of Malcolm and Angus Young, the guitar twins in ACDC. And George Young was a rock star in his own right. He was the rhythm guitarist, main songwriter, uh, and leader of the Easy Beats, which are absolutely the Beatles of Australia in the 60s, who went on to have a massive hit with Friday on My Mind in the US and UK that they never really followed up on. And one of the knocks against the Easy Beats, or at least the way they saw their own failings was that they had tried to keep up with the Beatles model of constantly innovating and changing. Mm -hmm. And they felt that that was a terrible mistake and that that had cost them their audience. And that's something that Malcolm and Angus absolutely vowed never to do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, famously, uh, also, they, they vowed never to do a, a power ballad <laughs> to their credits, <laughs> to their credit, they never did. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's that is the knock against that was the knock against the Easy Beats releases as, as they saw it themselves in, in the wide view. And, and, and certainly that's been a knock against ACDC. But their response has always been, why change? Why, why, why fix what ain't broken? You know, that cliche. And, and why, why feel the, the need, the sort of virtuosic need to improve on something or to become more sophisticated or more fully developed when what we're doing is so beautiful? And so wonderful and obviously so appealing and popular to millions of, uh, of people. I wonder if um, uh, Vanda and Young, uh, Harry Vanda and George Young, whether they they imported that that misgiving about the easy beats onto Malcolm and Angus and, and influenced them in that way, you know, to sort of stick with what you do and do it well and don't feel the the cultural obligation to uh, to become more progressive. And that's what they were fighting against, of course. I mean, ACDC formed in late 1973 when progressive rock was really sort of uh, in, in its ascension. And, and they were they were they were playing alongside bands like, yes, and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Pink Floyd and, 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 and these kinds of bands that that took virtuosity uh, to heart as that was something that that rock no longer rock and roll, but that rock music should really aspire to this kind of level of sophistication. And and they were really, really at odds with that. And I think to their eternal credit, they they just stuck with what they knew they loved and what and what worked well. Absolutely. And and at the time that was a very bold thing to do because you know when you think about peers in that 73 period, and there were bands like Black Sabbath that essentially perfected a formula and honed it for four or five albums, but then they couldn't resist trying to mm -hmm. develop and progress. And then somebody like T-Rex you know, there's the Mark Bola, David Bowie competition. And, and T-Rex lost that competition in many ways because they didn't change. They put out Electric Warrior and then the Slider and, and you know, tanks and repeat, rinse and repeat, whereas David Bowie is this chameleon who's constantly changing and innovating. So yeah, yeah. for ACDC to stick to their guns like that, and even, you know, their sort of later peer, the Ramones, who put out the same album essentially four times in a row. Yeah. Uh, wandered away from that and 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 sort of lost the plot whereas acdc was able to power through and, and break through but another thing that wasn't apparent to me really until reading this book was how much acdc was lumped in with the punk movement early yeah. on yeah yeah that was something that really surprised me too nate when i when i started uh researching and, and and writing the book but i'll be honest it's something that i that pleased me very much and something that sort of i intuitively felt or that intuitively felt right and sort of correct to me, in part because, well, I, I, I start the book by by recounting a, a show that ACDC played with a recently reunited MC5 in uh, in Detroit in 1977, and at first that sort of pairing seems a little bit odd, in 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 part because MC5 was a famously 
vocally uh, political band uh, throughout their their brief incendiary career. And ACDC never was and never has been. And arguably, as long as they're around, never will be a politically conscious band, uh, except for the idea of sort of hedonistic freedom to, to do what you want and to wave your freak flag and all of that. But where they did meet ACDC and and, and MC5 was at the sort of the, the sonic level, you know, of just loud, crunching, anthemic rock and roll. Uh, and the, the more ACDC played that and played it as fiercely and as minimally as they did throughout the mid-70s into the late 70s, the more sort of in retrospect, it, it becomes clearer that they were playing in a sense punk rock. You know, it wasn't politically charged. It wasn't necessarily class conscious rock and roll. Uh, or uh, 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 rock and roll that was uh, punk rock that was interested in sort of giving a voice to the proletariat in the way that the the more politically charged bands were doing in in, in the UK, and it wasn't necessarily sort of arty or fringy the way a lot of the New York punk bands were in, in the late seventies. But it was it was raw, it was basic, it was simple, it was anti-progressive in the sense that a lot of the punk bands were, and in retrospect. They, they 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 kind of slotted in nicely to those those lo-fi sort of minimally rock and roll uh, playing punk bands of the late seventies. It's and I think frankly, the more we get away from it, I mean, the, the further we get from that period, I think the more kind of nicely ACDC does fit in along with a lot of the the the, the at least less politically conscious punk bands of the era. It's it's really quite interesting. Yeah, and they not only played with MC5 in Detroit, but they played at CBGB's in oh, yeah. New York and the Marquee Club in London. And so they're seeing some of those same audiences. But I think that the key distinction, and you know, I was watching some Bon Scott interviews to prepare for this, and he's sitting there with his spiked hair mullet and his new wave shades, <laughs> yeah. uh, looking very late 70s. You know, you've got some quotes in the book, I think it's the editors of Sound Magazine who were talking about they had just nixed the Moody Blues for a cover shop because they looked like hairdressers. ACDC right. didn't have that problem. They had the edge in the late 70s and were very much of the time, if not ahead of the time. But Bond makes a very deliberate choice. And I think the political statement that they made or chose to make to break with punk is that they were not iconoclastic as far as rock and roll. They were happy to open up for UFO or Kiss and play long guitar solos and and projected themselves. They flirted with punk, but I think when they saw sort of the commercial disaster of the Sex Pistols, they pulled themselves in the direction of this is what works and this is what's reaching the kids and this is what we're going to do. And they just weren't into the iconoclasm of, of attacking the older generation of rock bands. Yeah, I, I think you know, it's interesting. Bon Scott was a, a real punk. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He was an outsider. He had trouble with the law. He had some trouble with drugs. He was very much kind of a juvie. You know, he was a juvenile delinquent for a lot of his years, and he really fit the mold of this sort of the anti-authoritarian punk. And if you look at some of the lyrics in the early ACDC records, the first few albums, he really was sort of shaking his fist, granted with, you know, with a grin, you know, with that sort of mischievous twinkle in his eye, but he really was shaking his fist at authority. You mentioned that the, the earlier song that you you, you played, that this he really had... He really embraced the voice of the working class that recognized and in, 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 in the class system that are, that's foisted upon kids, it's very, very difficult to aspire to anything greater than what 
class you were born into, which of course you have no choice. So that sort of frustration is something that Bond Scott really recognized and really sort of rallied against, or railed against rather. And he just, he found a, a sort of a sonic home for that in ACDC. But that was really the end of the political voice in ACDC. But that's, I think that's really all they needed. And that was sort of punk too. You're right, they were iconoclastic in that way. But they were interested in giving a voice to the working class, a, a voice to the to the to the to the kids who felt that they wanted to raise a middle finger at at authority and at the classes above them that they felt were holding them down, which is very punk to me, you know. But Bond was a was a was a true punk, but he also wanted to be popular. He also wanted to sell millions of records and reap the benefits of all that. So they were very much also had an eye on the bottom line and they wanted to sell millions of records and who can fault them for that, you know? Yeah, and also he was an experienced rocker. He'd been in um, yeah. several bands in Australia, including one fraternity that was a relatively hyped band. It was a, sort of the classic early 70s, get an album deal, buy a house in the country and, you know, get five dudes in the house recording their masterpiece and that kind of thing. And, you know, right. there's video of him on stage playing the flute. And yes, stuff. there is. <laughs> Yes, there is. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I think he took some of that punk iconoclasm personally maybe and and you know knew what side of the line he was on as far as the classic rock versus punk divide but let's hear a little bit more from the Vandy and Young era this is hell ain't a bad place to be place to be off of ACDC's classic Let There Be Rock album. And the Van Den Young team absolutely helped them perfect their formula. They put together, they recorded four or five classic albums with them. They broke through big in Australia, broke through comfortably in England, and were doing very well in Europe. But despite touring relentlessly and reading this book, it's like, damn, these guys worked their asses off tour yeah. after tour after they tour. Sh- they sure did. And and they were not making much headway in the USA until they hooked up with future superstar producer Mutt Lang. Yeah, and there was an interim uh, little uh, reach at uh, at accessibility in between uh, Young and, and Fandy and Young and and Mutt Lang, and that was with Eddie Kramer, who had made a name for himself, uh, particularly by producing the, the, the mega popular Kiss albums in the, in the mid 70s and, and the late 70s. But the demo sessions with Kramer just didn't work out for lots of reasons. But so, so the evidence is clear in retrospect that they were with some uh, plenty of pressure from from their record label, uh, eager for the, for the big hit, for the big American hit, because they wanted to be big in America. This is the, America is the, the the proving ground, you know, it's the source of the, the sort of the bedrock blues and, and and rock and roll that they love. So they really wanted to to make it here, uh, but it wasn't until they hooked up with Lang, who who uh, who gave them a. You can't you you listen to AC. You, I'm sorry, you listen to Highway to Hell, and it's it's hard to call that album glossy, especially relative to some of the later records they made, which which are sort of dated very badly to my ears. Uh, in context of the the production t- uh, taste of the time, but Highway to Hell, relative to the to the Van and Young 
records uh, had a sheen to it. It had a, a commercial ready uh, a shine to it that that Lang uh, uh, was responsible for and that the band was was eager to to accept. Absolutely. And, and you've got some quotes from some of the production team. I think it's Ed Stasium, who's famous for his work with the Ramones, among others, but who was involved with this project as well. And and he's, he calls it the three T's of Mutt Lang's production style, which is on time, in tune, and on tape, or in time, in tune, and on tape. And that, to me, really was informative. I mean, you know, the kind of anal retentive producer who sits down and tunes every guitar and makes sure that everything is absolutely, you know, as close to perfectly in tune as, as a well-tempered uh, instrument can be. And that, I think, sums it up that they, that they came at a perfect meeting for Highway yeah. to Hell and, and Back in Black too. that they are still recording live in a room, basically, mm-hmm. you know, with limited overdubs. And Lang hasn't his anal retentive tendencies haven't gotten so out of control that it's distorting the music yet. It's not Boston. It's not being handcrafted layer by layer, overdub by overdub. It's still a mighty rock band thrown down in a studio. It's just sanded enough of the rough edges that it went over big on American radio. And once that happened, you know, ACDC had the goods. They had the live performance. They had the back catalog. And, you know, it's interesting reading about this because my impression as a 10-year-old at the time, I can remember being in Zebra Records in Arlington, Texas, and the posters you know, in the store that summer was Get the Knack and mm-hmm. Highway to Hell and a pretty unsuccessful George Harrison album that came out around that time. But I, I, I just had the impression that Highway to Hell was this mammoth, massive success because you know, my record store was hyping it big. I'm hearing it big on the local Dallas. I can't remember the call letters of the Dallas classic rock station at the time, but they were definitely being played on the air, but this really only broke into the top 20 on the American album charts. Yeah. I think part of the, why I, I feel that same way in retrospect, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, I remember DC 101, the great uh, FM station where I grew up in Washington, DC suburbs. Uh, we're playing a whole lot of Rosie, the live version from the live album that just preceded Highway to Hell. And so when you're a kid and you're hearing songs on the radio, you know, you think, oh, this this band must be big. You know, their their songs are playing on the radio. And I, too, felt in retrospect or looking back, I I, I thought that Highway to Hell was had sold more units than it actually had. But I think that's because Back in Black and the mammoth success of that album and of for those about to rock, we salute you, which is, which came just a couple of years afterwards. I think it all kind of got blurred, and and so you mentioned the back catalog. So much of their earlier stuff came back into the charts after Bon Scott died, and after Back in Black became this ultimately the the second or third highest selling album in, in in music history. That I think what's what's the what's the what's the cliche that uh, rising tide lifts all boats. I think in retrospect, Highway to Hell seems like it was more popular now than it actually was. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the fact that it was such a great album, but as you point out, it's not a perfect album. There's a couple of not quite duds, but filler tracks on there. And there's also a couple tracks that to our politically correct 2020 years sound a little problematic. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And frankly, they sounded problematic to me when I was a 13 year old. I was, hard, <laughs> I was hardly a progressive 
feminist at age 13, but there was still something in those lyrics, especially in, in Night Prowler and in, uh, you know, even Girls Got Rhythm and, and Walk All Over You in particular, that were kind of disquieting to me when I was a kid. I, I, I knew that, that they were, that there was a, a, a sort of a menace and maybe a violence and maybe a, a vibe of getting off on, on being mean to girls, to women in the songs that I didn't like. And I write in the book that I resented having to like a song uh, that I didn't like just because it's on a great rock and roll album. So even as a teenager, I was sort of selective and I was turned off by some of those some of those songs, especially Walk All Of You and, and, and Night Prowler. Um, but eventually you have to say, okay, well, so I have some options, right? As a listener, I, I don't buy it. I turn it off. I I, I uh, uh, raise my voice against it in whatever way that I want to, or I accept that that is the attitude that the band is displaying. That's the attitude, unfortunately or not, that millions of people want to raise their fists to and, and party along with. But I think finally, to me, what 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 rescues uh, at least the Bon Scott era of misogyny or or dubious sexual politics in ACDC is that they they really sent it over with a sense of humor and with a half grin uh and, and my I think the the, the the best choice ACDC made was to write and then to include in the song Shot Down in Flames on Highway to Hell because that's a song you don't even have to listen very closely because to, to understand because uh, Angus Young's guitar solo sort of his nose diving guitar solo I think sort of makes fun of the what the song is essentially about which is Bon Scott striking out you know he's at the bar he's seeing girls he approaches he hits them and they say you know screw you <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I, I want nothing to do with you you're, you're, you're grossing me out and so he strikes out all night long and he sings it Making you know, recognizing that he's making fun of himself, that in one song he can be this sort of macho posturing stud, where girls are are, are falling to their knees in front of him, and in another song he's at a bar, he's striking out, and he's a loser. So there was that great balance, I think, in a lot of ACDC songs, that finally was wrapped up in a bow of I think of humor, of self-deprecating humor also, and and in the idea of let's just all celebrate and have fun, and 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 try not to be mean. Uh, some of it, some of the meanness crept up to the surface of some of the lyrics, which I'm still not crazy about. But I think it got a little bit worse even after Bon Scott died and, and Brian Johnson joined. Yeah, it it became repetitive and witless. It yes. Just, you know, yes. It, it fit right in with the just avalanche of cliche uh, hard rock and hair metal of the 80s. Uh, yeah. Once you get into the Brian Johnson era, and you know, a lot of people think that that Bon Scott had a hand in writing some of the lyrics of Back in Black. And looking at the subsequent work, I tend to believe that that might have been the case. But there's one other angle that you didn't mention that was very controversial in my circles in conservative, you know, fundamentalist Christian Texas, and that was the satanic iconography which is i mean they're not slayer or black sabbath or anything but you've got highway to hell and hell ain't a bad place to be and and angus is wearing devil horns and a devil tail on the cover of highway to hell it was definitely something that they cultivated what's your comfort level with that sort of thing at this point well i also read about that in the book i was raised catholic uh and so i was hearing I mean, this is the era of the 70s when if I wanted to go see a movie, my my mom would pull out the old Catholic standard 
and she would open up to the movies. And if it got a zero, if I got an O for objectionable, I wasn't going to go. Right. So I was raised with these literal Catholic standards that w- that would very much frown on these on these kinds of songs. And I and I read the articles, and I think I even went to a lecture at local university on on Satanism in, in lyrics. But for some reason, that bothered me a, a lot less, personally speaking, than the sexism. And the misogyny, in part because I felt that it, it it seemed to me as a kid pretty clear that this was something that ACDC was was posturing at. I, I never took it seriously that they were trying to uh, to to influence us, the listeners, in such a way that they would embrace uh, the devil or agnosticism, or that they would turn their back on, on on the values at which they were raised. It just seemed too much fun to me. It didn't seem scary. It didn't seem foreboding. It didn't seem, as you say, sort of in the Black Sabbath Slayer uh, uh, kind of over serious or, or, or portentous way. It, it just seemed fun. And it seemed pretty clear to me that they were aping this in part because it was bothering the fundamentalists and it was bothering some people and they got off on that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one other aspect of the Bon Scott rock and roll lifestyle, which is that ultimately it became a death style. Bon Scott dies, you know, they do the album, they tour on it, they're getting ready to do the follow up and Bon Scott either drinks or drugs himself to death. Yeah, it's 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 very sad and it was tragic, but but in retrospect, it did seem I I don't want to say inevitable. That's that's maybe putting too fine a point on it, but it was not surprising that that's the way Bon Scott ended up. But it's but it's it's tragic because, as I write in the book, he was he had finally achieved some financial comfort. He was well liked, which is which is something that he wanted. He was having fun. He worked his butt off, as you said, as the whole band did. And he was finally at a time when he could relax a little bit and enjoy and enjoy some of the some of the freedoms and some of the 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 financial successes. And then he drinks himself to death and dies. And just as the band were on the was on the cusp of their of their what became their worldwide acclaim. Now of course it's hard to know how much of the success that ACDC uh, experienced following Bon Scott's death had to do with what you might sort of coldly call the, the the dead bomb factor, right? I mean, Back in Black is a great album, but it, in part it's a great album because you listen to it as a kind of a moving tribute to, to Bon Scott. Who knows what kind of singer or lyricist Bon Scott would have been in the 80s uh, had he lived. He might have grown repetitive also. He might have grown cliched in his lyrics. He might have gotten lazy. He might have uh, uh, fallen back on, on, on his, some of his, on some of his lesser instincts as an artist, as an artist. Um, but, but that didn't happen. What did happen is that he, he, he died. He drank himself to death. And so he will always in sort of the eternal present tense of, of, of the end of his life, he will be, he has become this unwitting icon of the dangerous lifestyle but at the same time, as tragic as that is to his friends and his and his family, it it marks everything that came before it with a kind of a a wickedness, you know, with a kind of extra element and swirl of danger that only makes those Bon Scott era songs uh, even greater and, and more kind of thrilling to listen to, really. Yeah, I know it didn't hurt ACDC's rep in the middle school playground or <laughs> no, it <you> know, didn't. <laughs> in the back of anybody's Camaro uh, a few years later. But one thing that you avoid in the book, there's been a couple recent biographies of Bon Scott, and one of which in particular makes a case that 
he didn't drink himself to death, that he OD'd on heroin. You don't really get into that. Why not? Well, in part because a lot uh, – uh, well, because in, in part I was writing a, a relatively s- small book and there wasn't a lot of room, frankly, for me to to go into too many different directions. And I didn't want – I wasn't writing the book that was investigating the nature of Bon Scott's death. I was writing a book about the endurance of his last album with the band, which finally had little to do with his death and the circumstances of his death, but also because a lot of the the information that's come out about that came out after I, I wrote the book. Jesse Fink, uh, who wrote uh, the, uh, uh, I forget the name of the book now, hey, I can look at it, uh, The Lost Highway, that's what it's called, uh, is a book that came out recently that really kind of deeply, almost obsessively investigates these kind of circumstances around his death. But a lot of that research and, and, and material didn't come up until after I'd written my book. And what are your thoughts knowing now with that retrospective view about Bon Scott vis-a-vis heroin? I mean, do you feel like it changes the way we look back on him if it makes it more sinister and frightening or more sad and pathetic? Or what's your, your take of the meaning of that? Well, you know, I just – last night I just finished uh, a book called To Hell and Back by Walter Lohr, the guitarist oh, yeah. for the, the Heartbreakers. It's, it's a really, really good book. I recommend it. And And <laughs> – Every page. I mean, he's he's basically uh, he's he's hooked on smack from page one to until the last 10 pages of the book. I mean, the all of the heartbreakers, as we know, Johnny Thunders and the rest, they were all heroin addicts. And it 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 it, it finally is it, it's it's sad. It's it's tragic. It's it's decadent and all of that. But finally, it comes down to the choices that they make, obviously, and the choices they make to 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 maintain and to and to resist cleaning up as long as, as one wants to resist that. I mean, it all comes down to choices, in other words, dovetailing with, of course, the, the addiction, which is finally beyond their control. But I don't think it, 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 personally, it doesn't affect my feeling about Bon Scott one way or the other. He was a popular singer. He was reckless. He partied. He drank. He did drugs. He took speed and he did coke. I mean, he did everything that was laid out in front of him because that's the kind of life that he led. He, he liked to try things, he liked to do things, he liked to have a good time. Uh, the fact that heroin found its insidious way into his life to me just seems un, well, unsurprising, certainly, and probably a little inevitable. But it doesn't necessarily, for me personally, uh, color Bon Scott any differently uh, than if he hadn't done that. It just seems to have been the next step for him. Absolutely makes sense. And let's hear a little bit more uh, ACDC. This is Mutt Lang's version, Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell, the title track off their breakthrough album with the laying gloss on it, if, if you can call it gloss. But I mean, it's really like taking a pretty rough deck, sanding a little and <laughs> putting uh, a nice coat of, of shine on it and was just what the doctor ordered uh, for the commercial marketplace at the time. And so you can see the wisdom of uh, Atlantic Records. They knew what they were doing at that point. They could cultivate a band over a period of years. Yeah. If if And they gave 
they gave Vanda and Young multiple chances to break through with with the American audience. They they pushed uh, the last couple of albums pretty hard, and it just didn't happen. And that's when they they elected to you know mix it up, and not in a fundamental way, but just in the producer. That that's the one element that they felt you know at the time you could change and take another roll of the dice, and it obviously worked. But like you said. It ends in tragedy with the death of Bon Scott, and that puts them in a very unique position of having to replace their frontman and lead singer at the peak of their fame. How did they pull that off? Well, with a lot of luck, or a little bit of luck anyway, uh, they knew Brian Johnson from this band called Jordy, a glam rock band that he had been in. Uh, but famously, at the time of Bon Scott's death, I think Bon, uh, I'm sorry, Brian Johnson was, uh, was a vinyl roof car salesman in Northern England, uh, and he had all but turned his back on the on the music industry, but they found him and and uh, they asked him to to uh, audition, and he did, and they loved him and 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 he fit he stepped right in he stepped right into the fold. What's what's funny about ACDC and this is a metaphor that I it's not certainly I didn't invent it but I use in the book is they really just they they were they were they were working men you know what I mean uh, I mentioned in the book if you if you watch video of them playing Highway to Hell. Uh, there's there's Malcolm, he's sort of the foreman of the job site, nodding his head while Angus Young goes down the goes down the hole to 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 go to work. You know they they they, they worked and they wanted to work and they wanted to continue to work. They grieved Bon Scott certainly, and all the great times they had, and 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 they rued the fact that that just on what felt as the cusp of that that he would die and, and and not be able to reap the benefits as they hoped they would reap. But they wanted to keep working. And they didn't waste any time. They found Brian Johnson. They gathered together this terrific clutch of songs that Bon Scott had probably worked on. And they headed right back in the studio, this time in the Bahamas with, with Mutt Lang. And they went back to work. And it's you've got to give Brian Johnson a lot of credit. I mean, like you said, his, his lyrics and his artistry was not even close to the level of Bon Scott. But his basic talent level and his work ethic and professionalism was really incredible. I mean, to plug into a band at that level and be able to front the band in front of huge audiences, to be able to record a you know studio album masterpiece like Back in Black, and to be able to survive the lifestyle and the pressure and manage to know his place in an odd way. Like you talk about in the book, you know, in the Bon Scott days, Bon Scott was the frontman. Yeah. With Angus Young as this incredibly wild and charismatic uh, you know, secondary support front man. But in the Brian Johnson era, that's flipped. And Angus becomes the living symbol of the band and the one that the kids talk about leaving the concert hall because he's a lunatic. I mean, it's yeah. an incredible performer, this incredible energy levels. And, uh, you know, another really shrewd decision. I don't know if it was a decision on Johnson's part, but it's just the way it happened and it, and it worked out perfectly. But before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about Malcolm Young, who recently passed away of uh, Alzheimer's, I believe. And yet this is the guy is very undersung. He's not oh, the God. front man at all, but absolutely the brains and architect behind the band. Oh, there's no doubt. He's the piston, you know. He's the, he's the piston that that just goes to work smoothly and unobtrusively and modestly. But he take him out, and the band goes away. He was a he was also a songwriter. He was responsible with Angus uh, for writing some of the great riffs that that the, their songs were, were built around. 
he was a kind of a remarkable uh, cog, you know, in, in that machine. Uh, never took the spotlight, never needed it, never wanted it, as far as I know. He just knew what his role was, and that was to play that just intense rhythm guitar that laid down the foundation for this for this for this great band. And what's interesting to me is that he, as most people know, was a was a really terrible alcoholic throughout the '80s, and finally went into rehab, I think, in 1988, sometime in the late '80s. But it's remarkable as you look at footage from the years when he was apparently playing, you know, wildly drunk, and and he didn't miss a beat, he didn't miss miss a stroke. You know, he was no matter what kind of mood or condition he was in. That is, he played, he played uh, uh, beautifully and 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 regularly, and was that wonderful stable presence. That really his loss or his his departure from the band, such as the band is at this point in their career, was uh, clearly as as grave a loss as as Bon Scott was, perhaps even even graver. Yeah, I mean they've they've toured. Uh... Without him, because you know, as he descended into senescence, they replaced him. But it's just definitely not the same band, and it's it's. There's now no longer any question of will they do one more good album. I mean, there's no chance of a David Crosby late in life resurgence where suddenly all this creative work is coming out. I mean, maybe Angus could do it alone, but it, it just seems so unlikely. And and seeing the pictures of Angus at Malcolm's funeral. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know Very the hangdog little brother following the casket away. Oh, it's it's so sad, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, it's hard to see Angus being human, you know. And, well, yeah. And that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're they're that's very. I don't know whether it's very Scottish or very Australian or it's very something of them. You know, they 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 didn't wear their heart on their sleeve like that. So to see him sort of crumple and break down like that was was a very a very a very powerful thing to see. Yeah, I, I think that that they they are laying tracks for an album using some old uh, recordings of Angus. I'm sorry, of Malcolm, um, but I don't know what that's going to amount to. And frankly. Ever since the mid '80s, or I guess the early '90s, I've had no no faith that an ACDC album is going to be great anymore. But uh, who cares? You know, they they still sell out stadiums whenever they tour. So, yeah, and they've certainly got the the catalog. But yeah, like you say, after Thunderstruck, which was yeah. you know kind of an anomaly even for the album it was on, they really haven't had a classic track in in many decades. But. Yeah, they haven't. But that's you know that's 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 the that's the nature of things, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Who has? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And let's hear one last track. This is from the Brian Johnson era. This is Hell's Bells, which opened back in black. the first track off their comeback album back in black which was a massive success and a perfect way to open the album with tolling church bells and and a, a song that acknowledged the reality of, of what had happened to bon scott and one last thing i want to get into before we wrap and that's keith richards admiration for the band which is pretty unusual you hear keith richards talking a lot about you know blues singers from the 30s or even jerry lee lewis from the 50s you really don't hear keith richards acknowledging any of his hard rock successors. I mean, maybe Johnny Thunder's got a kind word out of him, but, um, you know, it's very singular that Keith admired ACDC. And to me, it's because of their 
formal genius. I mean, there's very few bands that can take three at most five chords and create so many masterpieces out of such limited material. Well, when you think of Keith Richards, you think <clears throat> one of the greatest rhythm guitar players in rock and roll, right? So it makes sense that he would admire a band that had that bedrock sense of rhythm to them. But also, as 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 he as I quote in the book, he he admired the fact that they never felt, as we began today talking about, they never felt they had to change for change's sake. They knew what they did well and they stuck with it. And and you you read that quote by Keith, I think he said in the late eighties, when the Stones were basically, well, they were on hiatus. That's a that's the, the generous way to put it. But they were they were really threatening to dissolve for good. And you can hear him sort of rolling his eyes, at least I do, against Mick Jagger's obsession with keeping current and staying current and trying trends to see how they could maybe wrap the stone sound around around that trend and, and remain remain commercially viable and current, which Keith Richards was never terribly interested in. So I think he admired that about ACDC, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, they put out a lot of mediocre stuff in the 80s, but there's nothing in their body of work that's outright embarrassing the way that Mick Jagger's video appearances in the 80s are today. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, although I think that um, uh, uh, Fly on the Wall, their 1985 album, is pretty atrocious. In yeah. part because the, the songwriting is just, is uh, is awful, and and it's the the most anemic and and lame sort of mid '80s sound that ACDC ever got. That that's an album I I think they probably wish they could they could just forget about. But yeah, they they never. You know, in part because you 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 know you you're never going you never hear synthesizers on their on their albums. You never hear. I I, I will say that I think that their drum sound uh, often reflected the era in which they were recorded. Um, yeah, I think to 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 the band's detriment. But but you know that's okay. We, you can forgive them that. But for the most part, you you don't hear ACDC ever stretching too wildly or too far to to uh, make contact with what was commercial at the time, uh, which is, of course, is to their credit and part of why their music lasts. Yeah, although one decision they made around that time, definitely, I mean, if you compare them to Aerosmith, who embraced hip-hop and, and famously recorded, you know, Walk This Way with Run DMC, the BC Boys' first track is completely built off of ACDC songs, and they wanted no part of it. They suppressed the BC Boys' record yeah. and have, you know, been infamously conservative, reactionary about never allowing anybody to sample their yeah. stuff, which is a huge loss to hip hop and all sample-based music because the grooves are there. Oh my God! Yeah, know? yeah. I, so, I remember, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, now. Just what, what's your no, take on that? Like, I, I've never really understood that, and you know, I also mentioned in the book that. But at the time I was writing in, in 2010, uh, they hadn't allowed any of their songs on streaming services yet. Now, that's changed. And that was really surprising when that happened, uh, because, you know, they, they come out of the generation of albums. You know, they, they grew up loving singles, but they, they came up in the album generation and they didn't like the idea, as I believe Angus has mentioned on occasion of people being able to cherry pick their uh, albums for favorite songs, which is another reason why I think they never released a conventional greatest hits album, which is very strange when you think of, of, of their catalog and, and, and their sales. Um, but as far as the hip hop stuff and the sampling, I don't, I don't really understand it. I think it's maybe old fashioned. It maybe reveals something 
pretty conservative in their in their in their in their temperament, uh, perhaps in their way of, of, of looking at things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't I don't get it apart from the, the revenue stream that that shut down, which I know Angus should 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 have, should have embraced. Uh, it, it, it also, like you said, it, that would be in character, right? It's also, like you said, a, a loss to to hip hop and the generations of fans who grew up grooving to that stuff as a way to find their their, their way back to to back in black or one of the some of the stomping riffs that the, the Beasties and others sampled. So yeah, I don't get it. It's just that's that's the band being the band, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, Aerosmith had a totally embarrassing decade in the '90s as they, you know, uh, continued played off of that success with yes. with Run DMC and, yes. and, and just yeah, just joined the hip rate of of you know getting songs from the latest songwriters and on video on MTV every few months with a new track that did not add to their legacy. But yeah, and also look, and, and look how look how awful their power ballads were too no matter how many how many millions of records they sold so cheers to angus for staying clear of the power barrel power ballad also absolutely so here's to acdc and and joe bonomo the book is the 33 and a third uh highway to hell thanks for coming back on the show great talking to you nate thanks so much for having me back that was fun Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Nate's guest will be Josh Allen Friedman and the topic will be the songwriting greats Lieber and Stoller. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. ACDC's Highway to Hell by Joe Bonomo is part of the 33 and a third book series published by Continuum. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 